This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Howard by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is now available wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The professor is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of invest- investment products. We're going to have a really interesting show. I'm here back on Wharton's campus, live in the studio. Uh, the professor is going to be with us for the hour, talking with Greg Valliere, who's a chief U.S. strategist at AGF Investments, a Toronto uh, or Canadian-based firm. Um, and we're going to get Greg's view on what's happening in politics. He's based out of Washington, has a lot of great insights that uh, the press and I see on a daily basis. So I, we're, no, we're looking forward to that. But Professor, uh, the markets here are not liking some of this inflation. What are we, <laughs> what are we seeing? Right, right. And first of all, I, let me say how thrilled I am that Greg is aboard. He, he's been on before. His Washington Bullets comes out every morning. I read it right away. comes out early in the morning, and uh, we, we, we exchange emails, and it's really a treat to, to have him on. All right. Um, okay, has so much to say. Yeah, th- this did not look good, but it's not as bad as it looks. First of all, what really looked bad was the year-over-years. Um, report. Um, just about uh, an hour ago, J.P. Morgan came out with a deep analysis and said that the seasonal adjustments that they've made uh, have pushed it up artificially. Uh, and I won't go into the details why. And later this year, those seasonal adjustments will be pushing it down on a year-over-year basis. So the big jumps of year-over-year over expectations which, of course, are going to get a lot of, you know, because that's the way people talk about it. And, and for the first time sequentially, we actually had a rise in year over year, which is, uh, you know, a shock. You know, that really did shock the market. The details are, are, are not as bad. But, I, you know, clearly they're not good. The, the CPI wasn't uh, particularly good. The PPI was, uh, was not good. Um, so let, let, let me step back a little bit. All those indexes are backward-looking indexes. Um, what I like to do is look at forward-looking indexes of inflation. What about commodity prices? We've got a slew of very comprehensive and long commodity price indexes. Goldman Sachs has one. Bloomberg uh, has one. There's the Commodity Research Bureau Index. All of them are at or hitting new lows. At the present time, oil is down, natural gas is down. We could go through all all the other items. They are not showing any heat up of the rate of um, inflation. Um, what about housing? Well, uh, actually, next week on Tuesday, we'll get the Case Shore uh, Housing uh, Index. It has gone down for uh, six consecutive um, months. Um, uh, uh, five consecutive months, and that forecast is it'll go down again for the sixth month. Now, we've talked many times here about how the BLS index is way lagged. It took uh, the Fed and Powell, uh, you know, months and months, if not years, to seemingly to understand that. Now they talk about core rate ex-rental and ex-housing because they know that that's such a distorted index. That's going down. Rental rates are going down. Um, uh and, and by the way, um, the home sales number looked really hot. Did you look at what happened to median and average home prices? They plummeted by a near record amount. Now, what's going on there? Well, we had a window of lower mortgage rates in the month of January, which then encouraged l- lower-priced housing purchases. So it's not that house prices actually fell that, but what got sold was those houses in the lower uh, priced area for which people take mortgages, you know, not the multi-million ones where people usually finance it from their stock 
portfolio. Um, guess what? What do you think the mortgage rate is right now with what we've seen in the bond market? By the way, the 10-year right now at 397 on its way to 4%. The mortgage rate's back to 7%. What do you think that's going to do to housing prices uh, in February or, more importantly, in March for all those people that need to do financing <laughs> that way? Um, it's, it's, it's not going to be. Um, uh, particularly good. What about inflationary expectations? That came out today also. No increase. In fact, a, a tick down in the one-year inflationary expectation. There is no sign of unmooring of inflationary expectations. The bugaboo that Jay Powell talks about all the time. We want, don't want that ever to get unmoored. And there's no sign that that is unmoored, uh, except you know all the flurry about you know the the, the recent backward-looking distorted indexes on commodity prices. And then, of course, uh, M2, which also comes out next Tuesday, I think is going to show another drop. As you know, in the year 2022, M2 dropped by the most amount since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Um, It looks like we're going to have another decline in the month of uh, January, at least from preliminary data on deposits that, that I look at. So, when I look at what is the on-the-ground, forward-looking indicators, I still see no sign to, quote, panic and push the button and over-tighten. Um, let's step back. There's no question that if the Fed tightens more, you know, goes into the mid-five range, or even people are now talking about near six, they'll slow down inflation. And and people seem to applaud that. Oh, my goodness, yeah, slow down inflation. But, hey... He also wants to slow down wage growth. <laughs> You're not going to get any real increase in in, uh, in incomes there. His purpose is not only to slow down inflation, and it will slow down faster if he hikes more, but also slow down wage growth. And in addition, according to the Fed's own projection, increasing unemployment rate from 1% to 2%, that throws 3 million people out of work. Now, is that something we we need given the fact that inflation has come down quite dramatically already. My feeling is, as we slow it down, yes, we'll have a few points more cumulative inflation and better wage growth and not throw 2 million, 3 million people out of work. Um, Those are, to me, the trade-offs. I mean, no one can deny that you can clamp down more. But people are looking at it one-sided as if, oh, we're going to clamp down more and, uh, you know, my wages will buy more as a result. And two, you know, uh, oh, I don't have to worry about being unemployed. Listen, economics is a matter of trade-offs here. The big bulge of money supply growth that we saw in 2020, 2021 is working its way through the system. It's not going to be eliminated immediately. We've already done a good job at uh, bringing that down. Um, of course, you can see the markets are, you know, when the, you know, the, 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 the 10-year tips, 157, not as high as it was before. The, the, the 10, you know, real rates will drive down equity prices. Um, the one reason why it's not crashing equity prices is all of a sudden a talk of not only a soft, not a soft landing or a hard landing, but a no landing Um where we're really not going to have a big significant increase in unemployment or a significant decrease in real GDP, which is good for earnings. I maintain that that what is going to be important, the next really important data, besides the money supply and the case-shower index and all that, is, is really going to come out on October 10th when we get uh, the February employment report. Is going to show strength. If it's north of 250, I think 50 basis points is on on the on on the uh, plate. And of course, we'll get some inflation data coming out also uh, before uh, the meeting. Um, if it's considerably less, and by the way, I don't rule out a negative number for February. I don't rule that out. I think the whole tenor of discussion will change. I mean, the first negative number we will have had since the pandemic, the, the you know, the grips of the pandemic two and a half years ago. So um, uh, that's not impossible. I'm not forecasting at the present time. Also, two days before we get the jolts data 
uh, on October 8th. That's also going to be really important. The labor market data, if the Fed sees some loosening in the labor market in March, when the data comes out for the month of February, I think 25 basis points will prevail. If they don't see any reduction there, initial claims remain as tight as they are, uh, job growth remains as tight, unemployment rate remains as tight, and all the rest. 50 basis points is definitely going to be on the table for the March meeting. Professor, to, to your point on all this sort of forward-looking versus backwards-looking data, one of my friends who writes a daily summary of all the big news and, and is a macro-type commentator on CNBC, Peter Bookvar, a lot, he, he put out a note, uh, interesting, from the CEO of ZipRecruiter. His name's Ian Siegel. No relation to you, I don't think. But uh, the CEO of, of uh, ZipRecruiter talked about on their call, they have jobs postings for firms and January's revenue was down 15% year over year. They're seeing a surge in people looking for jobs on their data and firms cutting back. It's sort of a really interesting yeah. anecdote on yeah. on that forward-looking jobs. For the jobs. Now, there's also another very interesting, uh, Torsten Slock, um, I forget the firm that he's associated with, puts out a daily message and, and he put something out that I saw yesterday was really startling. Uh, the response rate to all the surveys the government puts out, the JOLT survey, the employment survey, and and, and included a a whole bunch of others, has plummeted. It plummeted, of course, during the worst part of the the pandemic. Then it began to recover, and now it's uh, getting to be new lows. And in fact, the biggest decline is the JOLTs. The response rate from the JOLTs over the last five years, according to... Fox data has gone from 70% to 35%. How accurate are these data that we're getting? That's, uh, that's a question. I'm just saying, obviously, when response rates go down, standard errors of, of, of the estimate uh, go up in terms of, of, of what we're actually seeing. And, of course, if the Fed relies on that, not aware of that, um, you know, that also could uh, make for a policy misstep. But, uh, uh, Jeremy, your comments are, are really quite interesting, and that's why I'm so anxious to wait till that March data. Normally it comes out on the first Friday of the month, but February being 28 days, um, it's, it's uh, one week later, so it's coming out on March 10th. Well, let's bring on our guest, Greg Valliere. Again, he's the chief U.S. strategist of AGF Investments. Greg, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Do you want to respond? So, oh, go, I'll let Professor, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying, uh, Greg, uh, you write on economics a lot as well as politics. Uh, um, do you have any, do you want to go back and forth on some of these economic points or any other economic points? Well, first of all, it's great to be with you. It's always a lot of fun to hear what you're saying. And I would argue that uh the economy still is doing well because we haven't spent all of the uh, $3 trillion or so that came out of the uh, pandemic. Uh, many states have not spent all of the money. Many individuals still have not spent all of the money. And I think that it, the economy will continue to surprise on the upside. Uh, yeah, there there might be some spending, but what... Uh, uh, it seems like the consumer uh, himself or herself is really a lot of the, the strength of what we're seeing. Not, Although government, I think, was coming up as that. But do you think that the government could take the place of a sagging consumer as a result of these hiked rates? Well, obviously, there's going to be a, a need to look at credit card expenditures. That's going to be crucial, as you know. But I think there are a lot of other areas of stimulus, for example, uh, you look at the 8.7% increase that senior citizens are getting uh, from Social Security. That's that's a nice st- source of stimulus. And, and you look at some recent uh, labor settlements. They've been pretty generous uh, ha- as well. So uh, I, I just think this economy's got a ways to go. Obviously, by the second half of the year, I think the uh, accumulation of all of the Fed rate hikes will begin to take a toll. But I don't think we're there yet. 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, uh, the, 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 the strength is there. Now, we should say about the Social Security is that 8% plus is to compensate for inflation. So, yep. I mean, it looks like it's a big jump for one month, but compared to a year ago, that's not a, an increase in purchasing power. <laughs> um, since it, it really offsets the inflation. Is that uh, would be your interpretation? Well, statistically, you're absolutely right. I just think psychologically, uh, people have been pleasantly surprised by the extent of uh, the, their their monthly increase, and it and it's a little early to make a call, but I think the next uh, year will show another significant uh, increase. Professor, what? Can, yeah, can because I, of the lagged. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to cut you up, but because of the lagged effect of housing in the CPI, the CPI is going to run a lot longer than actual inflation. So you're absolutely right. January of next year is going to, you know, I, I don't think the CPI housing is going to turn down until the very end of this year. And it's, you know, 42% of the core rate. So it's pump going to be pumping it up. Uh, and that's the, the, therefore going to be an actually uh, a real increase in purchasing power coming in uh, for uh, for the coming year. Um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I don't want make, make this point. You know, you've got the Federal Reserve, you know, pretty strict right now, pretty tight at two or maybe three moves to come, as you know. I would argue that fiscal policy is going to be tighter. Uh, you look at the Kevin McCarthy House, uh, they are very tight-fisted. They're going to demand uh, something in return for raising the debt ceiling going to be a very, very, very difficult fight in late late summer. But I think when all of the dust settles, I think that fiscal policy also will be pretty restrictive. Where do you think the cuts could come on a, a deal to avoid a default? Where, where would they come? Great question. First of all, I'd say where they won't come from. They definitely will not come from Social Security or Medicare. Agreed. They won't, they won't come from any new taxes. I don't see that happening. Uh, and I do think that defense, I may, have been, I may be wrong on this. I thought late last year defense might get a haircut. I don't see it now after what's happened in Ukraine. I think that, uh, and, and with the Chinese sounding so belligerent, I think defense will get another big increase. So, yeah, where, does it be, where do the cuts come from? I would make this point. I think it is so difficult to go into this budget with 12 appropriation bills, hundreds and hundreds of major programs, and to cut everywhere would take months and months and months. So I think they may opt for an across-the-board freeze or an across-the-board 1% increase or 2% increase. I think that's probably the way they'll go. When you say, so uh, you know, in in terms of, now, in, uh, that does not compensate for inflation. So that is, uh, that's, uh, so th they're going to, would that apply to the infrastructure expenditures, everything across the board? Or, I mean, what, what type of expenditures would, would that uh, 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 apply to? I'd say anything that's not considered essential, veterans benefits, and we mentioned Social Security and Medicare. So uh, everything that is domestic discretionary, which, as you know, is not a big part of the overall budget. No, that's it's why I'm wondering what, what is it? Yeah. Would it be the infrastructure that, or what, 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 what allocations by the federal government for emergency? Relief? I mean, I, I don't even know those categories very well. So that, uh, it, it's it's all in a, all shrouded in fog. You're absolutely right. But I, I would say that uh, that 16 percent of the budget that is discretionary. Uh, will take a hit, maybe a 2 or even 3% cut. Unfortunately, that is not enough to really uh, come close to balancing the budget. It's just it's a tiny fraction. So I think the Republicans, who have now taken a careful look at what is doable, are beginning to realize that uh, it's going to be really difficult to get big cuts in this budget. Yeah, do, would the cuts also, uh, do you think there'll be cuts to... Um and in federal workers' uh, wages? That's already been put, put in law. I think that's going to be uh, t tough to get. I'm, I'm not sure they would, uh, they would get that, no. I mean, you know, I, I, I remember 
going back and let's let's talk a little bit about you know as you say late summer is now it's uh, i mean yelena uh, uh, you know originally thought it might be april may now it seems to be july august september whatever in terms of uh, when when the uh you know uh tire hits the road on on that uh uh, uh that situation um i i remember when trump you know tried to close you know down the government you know, finally, when, you know, TSA wasn't there and, and all the rest, he, it, he finally broke down and, you know, signed the legislation. When, it, when, when something happens that stops some, uh, what people think is an essential service, uh, it seems like that breaks the will. Um, it's yeah. not like you know, the, the controllers. I mean, Reagan stood up, you know, you know, how many years ago are we talking here? 40 years ago against the controllers, I remember and uh, that that was considered a victory. But uh, when Trump tried to stand up to uh, TSA expenditures, that was not one. Let, let me make this other point on the budget. This is a pet peeve of mine. People say, well, we're going to cut spending. No, they're going to reduce the rate of increase. That's an important distinction. I, I don't think there are actually going to be any really big time, meaningful cuts and I think this will gradually dawn on, on the Republicans and McCarthy. The problem is there's about a dozen militant House conservatives who don't want to raise the debt ceiling, period, no matter what they're given in exchange. McCarthy is going to have to cut a deal. And I'd say the White House, and we, we may talk later about Biden, who I think has been on a, a pretty good run lately. Right. I, I think the, the, the White House is is going to have to negotiate. And McCarthy is going to have to negotiate. This will come in late summer. If we get to the precipice in early August and there's still no debt ceiling increase uh, and the markets are starting to get jittery, I would not rule out Jerome Powell very reluctantly saying that we have to maybe purchase bonds that are about to default. Powell has said previously that that is a loathsome scenario for him. But at some point, if the option is U.S. debt default, as opposed to the Fed maybe buying some bonds, I think the latter may prevail. Oh, I, 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 I absolutely agree. Uh, and actually, I think he bought almost all the bonds, too, too many of them during the pandemic. So actually, right. you know, he, he calls it loathsome, but, you know, he basically did it before during the pandemic. It's not really that that much of a, a of a difference but let, let's let's also i mean the reason why i think this is a game of chicken yeah. and you know uh when when two cars are racing and who is going to turn first um uh you and i have seen this scenario before that if there if there if it comes to a day and there's a wobble in the government bond market and there will be a huge wobble and a wobble in the stock market whoa I I look at remember when the Republicans voted down the um, TARP plan Mm -hmm. uh, after the financial crisis. The Dow went down 700 points that day, which is equivalent to 2000 today. And guess what happened? They got phone calls from their constituents. And guess what happened? They turned around three days later and passed exactly what they said they weren't going to pass. You've hit the nail on the head, I think, Professor. I think that uh, when when we get right to the final point, a, a very volatile market would be the catalyst that we need. There's going to have to be a catalyst. And I think, a, a, a again, big volatility in the markets might be enough to persuade Congress to do the right thing. Is, is there any possibility that some of the more conservative Democrats might Come, you know, I mean, you know, you say he needs all all the votes. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm just well, I guess if the Democrats all vote for him, he'll still need that 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 other group of, yeah, the, um, yeah, of the Republicans to uh, yeah. to do that. But I think I, I just can't picture how, you know, when you see what would happen in the in the uh in the financial markets and mm-hmm. people are going to say, what are you doing? Uh, you know, because, uh, you know, they all look at their portfolios and, you know, you get a headline of the Dow down to 2000 points. Uh, whoa. 
there's a possibility of gimmicks, of course, as you know. Uh, I talk of a $1 trillion. The dollar platinum coin. Platinum coin, which Janet Yellen has been scathing about. Uh, of the possibility of prioritizing spending, saying, all right, we're going to spend on Social Security, veterans, benefits, defense, but nothing for, for other parts of the government. I think there's no way in the world that Joe Biden would agree to something like that. I think that uh, that the Dems will see themselves uh, benefiting from any chaos in the financial markets politically. Yeah. Uh, so there's no reason, you know, for them to... Um, Stop uh, a train wreck um, or uh, until the Republicans do what happened, uh, you know, 15 years ago with the tarp. And uh, I'd make this other point. If the Republicans are this determined to get a balanced budget, that's a laudable goal. What's your plan? At, at some point in the next month or two, the Republicans have to explicitly state what their plan is. As of now, they have not been able to come up with one. But isn't that what the Republicans have been doing for years now? I mean, it's like what Trump kept on saying, we're going to get rid of Obamacare and replace it by something better. And no, no plan ever came up. Yeah. I mean, on and on and on. Um, uh, now, it doesn't mean that no better plan is, is, is available. But this sort of thing about we're opposed to this, but not putting forward, well, what are you essentially going to do. I, I think this would rebound to the Democrats' favor the longer they go, and that's why I think the Republicans have to blink at the end. Um, they always have. They, that, that's the pattern, as you know. The, the, the pattern is at the last minute someone will blink. Uh, I know you've been critical because I've said that 60-40, there won't be a default, and you could argue I, 40, 40 is too high. I think uh, 40 is too high. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's 95-5. I may concede that one to you as we get into the late summer. But the, <laughs> the bottom line I think we both agree on is we, the U.S. is not going to default. That is such a horrific yeah. scenario, again, that I think uh, Jerome Powell, with great reluctance, might have to inject himself into this. Professor, if yeah, I could interject I a question to you on sort of stepping back from the short term to the longer term. We, we said – uh, and Greg said, hey, Social Security, the entitlements are not going to be on the table. Um, it, and it, it, people always sort of seem to put these sort of crisis moments to the very end. When do you think there will be a sort of crisis moment from entitlements? And w what, what does it take for them to actually take action here? In my opinion, and I've maintained this for years and years and years, is that the only time you do a major reform is if, interest rates really back up. Now, they're backing up now, but primarily because of the Fed and primarily because of, you know, the fight against inflation. But if you take a look at uh, paring back the Reagan tax cuts, if you take a look at paring back the Bush tax cuts, it came after the bond market started saying no more. And uh, they started backing up and home builders were really hurt, home and things work. And that, until something hurts, you're not going to get any action. Which is why Japan um, never you did You will it. just not get any action. Japan That's never That's my hurt. opinion. And there's nothing, I mean, this is a fight against inflation. Let's assume this is going to normalize. The crisis of Social Security and Medicare are long-term. So they're, they're multi-years into the future. They are unsustainable to be sure, but to actually do something about them really requires someone to say, hey, what's the pain? Um, because don't forget, we've been getting warnings uh, for 20 years about how the debt is going to do in the economy, and none of them have ever been true. There have been studies, including a, a famous one by the Federal Reserve, that showed very little correlation between deficits and inflation. Uh, so I, I agree with you. Yeah. I, I think that uh, we would have to see real pain in the economy. Uh, there have been politicians like Paul Ryan who have talked about some reforms, but he was excoriated in his own party for talking about even a modest fix on the COLA, the cost of living adjustment that uh, is part of the, uh, the makeup. So I, I think you're right. There is no one right now who has the courage. Uh, if you want to talk about it, you're probably going to get tremendous pushback. Oh, yeah, you're going to get it. And so and, and why talk about it now? I mean, again, I think it's a losing hill. I mean, what's, what's the crisis? I mean, the bond market's backing up now because of the Fed's fight against inflation, not because of the deficit that we have. Exactly. 
we see a rise in Biden's ratings um, recently. Um, and I think he made a strong showing in uh, Ukraine that and that could boost them uh, even more. Um, actually, uh, uh so his ratings are stronger, and if he wants to run at this particular juncture, I, I think no one's no one's going to stop him um, if he wants to run. Even though there might be a lot of hesitation here and misgivings about having someone as old as him and getting older, and we are getting older, um, uh, uh, continue to be uh, president. Um, uh, on, uh, and then and then the question is, if he decides not to, and I want to know your opinion on that, you know, who who do you think are the front runners on the Republican side? Uh, it's you know, the front runners are clearly uh, DeSantis and, and Trump and uh, DeSantis um, is kind of doing a, a, a Trump shimmy a little bit. He hesitated a bit on Ukraine. Um, I, he's, is he trying to take the populist mantle from Trump? It's I don't see how, you know, if he's going to be, uh, a young Trump, I, I still don't know whether that is, um, you know, when, when, and when the Republicans are faced with a young Trump versus uh, the real Trump, um, the polls, uh, the Republican polls, DeSantis and Trump still show Trump Beating DeSantis in the primaries in those states where those um, uh, 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 polls have been taken. So uh, we'll take it away, Greg, on the Dem side and uh, the GOP side. Well, let me start with the Democrats. And both parties have a common issue that they've got to deal with. And that's, as you said, is age. So I thought during the fall of last year that Biden would not run. I think I'm wrong. Hate to admit it. But I thought in the fall, and I still think now, that Joe Biden has to be thinking about the fact that if he won a second term, he would be leaving office at the age of 86. It's a stressful job. It diminishes people. It's, it's so stressful. And to think of a president at the age of 86 is, I think, for a lot of Americans, unnerving. And the polls have shown a, a majority, a surprisingly big majority of Democrats are saying they're apprehensive about uh, Joe Biden seeking a second term. So when you combine all of that, I thought there was a possibility that uh, Biden would not run. But as you point out, his poll numbers have gotten uh, better. I think his uh, trip to Kiev was uh, audacious. It was brave. Uh, it made people realize that he still has some energy. So if he wants the nomination, it's his, no question. If he should announce that he's not going to run, and there was a piece this week in Politico, which all of us in Washington read, that shook things up, saying that uh, Biden wasn't certain to run and that many Democrats are planning, just in case, are planning to challenge uh, to run if uh, Biden doesn't. And that list could keep us going for two or three hours. I won't go through all of the possibilities, but Kamala Harris would be on the short list, although some would say she's been a disappointment, but she's an African-American woman. She's got some things going for the constituency in the party. And then you've got just tons of governors, uh, starting with uh, with California, with Gavin Newsom, but an awful lot of other governors, uh, maybe the governor of New Jersey, the governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, a lot of governors, I think, would jump into this race. And if you want to talk about age, there's Bernie Sanders, who's 80, 81, and he's sharp as a tack. He's an angry old guy, angry old socialist. Uh, he's made it clear that he will run if Biden doesn't. So a big field. On the Republican side, quickly, I think that uh, it's going to be a neck-and-neck neck race for a while with some new faces coming in. It's not just going to be DeSantis and Trump, who are about deadlocked now. I think DeSantis has slipped a little in the last couple of weeks. He hasn't had a good stretch. But many other Republicans are itching to get in and will get in. A uh, very intriguing guy named Tim Scott of South Carolina, African-American, very religious guy. Uh, probably Mike Pence, although his numbers are awful. Maybe Mike Pompeo. Uh, so they'll be joining a, a large field that now has Nikki Haley, 
and she made uh, headlines with age again. So that subject keeps coming back. She has, has said she wants to have a limit. Uh, she wants to have mental competency tests on older candidates to make sure they were competent to run. Well, this has backfired on Nikki Haley because it's created a lot of opposition among senior citizens who resent it. So there's, there's huge, huge uh, crowds, I think, possibly in, in both parties. I do think Biden will be the nominee if he wants it. On the Republican side, I've said this before and I'll say it again. We underestimate Donald Trump at our own peril. <laughs> to, to be sure. I think we also have to realize that the election is what? It's 18 months away or 20 months away. I mean, an awful lot can happen in the next year and a half. I mean, is the Fed pushing so hard that we actually have a recession? That will Mm -hmm. definitely uh, uh, affect the outcome. Um, What, uh, let, let me ask you before jumping in a little bit more. If, if it is Trump or DeSantis mm-hmm. against Biden, um, as it stands now, who do you think would win? I think Biden uh, beats Trump because Trump's base, it's rock solid, but it's not much higher than 35 maybe 40%. That's not enough to win a, a general election. If it's Trump-DeSantis, that's more unpredictable. You know, DeSantis is 44 years old. Uh, he is very popular in Florida. Uh, he has uh, some fresh ideas. Uh, I think he still needs a little more seasoning, but I think a Trump-DeSantis showdown would be harder to predict. If it's Trump uh, against Biden, I think Trump loses. Uh, why then? What, what does surprise me, and I, I tend to agree with you, but when I see polls that are taken now, yep. um, Trump does better against Biden than DeSantis does against Biden. Well, as you said, we've got 18 or 20 or 22 months to go before, probably 20 right. months to go before the, the election. And I, I just think a lot uh, could change at that point. I mean, despite what Trump keeps saying, he lost pretty convincingly once already to Biden. That was not a close race. Trump uh, lost by seven percentage points. He lost by a ton of electoral votes. So I think that uh, you have to say Biden is the front runner. If the economy is doing okay, you make a very important caveat. And if Ukraine is going better, if Ukraine is really going poorly and relations with China are going poorly, and the economy is only mediocre, yeah, Biden could lose. But I'd say right now he could he could beat Trump again. Yeah. Let's let's uh, shimmy to that uh, Ukraine situation on the one year anniversary uh, of, of the original invasion. I, I would say for me and uh, for most of us never thought that the Ukrainians would do as well and on the flip side, the Russians would do as poorly as they did. But uh, there's still, uh, you know, you're talking about a, uh, you know, a country with a uh, Russia with a far bigger population, army, and and store of of weapons. Um, what's your assessment of uh, where that conflict stands now and uh, where it might be going? Well, I would start by saying that a year ago today, I said there was no way Russia could win this war. And I would reiterate a year later, there's no way Russia can win this war by any standard definition of the word win. Why do I say that? I'd say two things primarily. Number one, the Russian soldiers are very unwilling to die for Vladimir Putin. Ukrainian soldiers are willing to die for their country. That is an enormous difference that the troop morale is crucial. Maybe the Russians have more bodies to expend. Maybe they have more tanks. Actually, they don't. But troop morale is crucial, number one. Number two, and this has been a pleasant surprise, the NATO and the U.S. have hung in there. There has not been a wavering of support. Uh, I think that uh, Biden gets credit for keeping NATO together. And uh, even though there's polls showing that the American public is getting a little leery of spending all this money, the key players to watch may be Republican hawks. People like Lindsey Graham, 
people like uh, Mitch McConnell, people like um, Mitt Romney. There's enough conservative Republican hawks to, I think, assure that we'll spend plenty of money. So unfortunately, this war is going to drag on for a while. It may take a, a angry generals and angry oligarchs to uh, force Putin out. I don't rule that out. But the idea that Russia was going to win that this war, I think, has been thoroughly debunked. Yeah, uh, you know, and let me congratulate you on that first, because I would say most people a year ago said, oh, Russia is going to win this just on the basis uh, of the size. I, I know you've been following a number of articles about uh, and and uh, I have uh, the number of young people that are leaving Russia yeah. that are, uh, uh, well, not, you know, evading the draft, but they're also getting a dramatic uh, intellectual drain. I mean, uh, yep. you know, people don't want to stay there. They want to make their, uh, but it's interesting. Um, the article I read, and, and I, I think it was maybe the New York Times, I'm not too sure, you know, talked about them going, I didn't hear them going to the United States. I don't know whether uh, we may, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I guess maybe we've clamped down on Russia, but uh, not letting them in, but there's a lot of in really intelligent people there that I think uh, we could make room for it. Yeah, some are going to Dubai, some are going to yes. Helsinki, some are going to Istanbul. Yeah, hey, there's one other subject, if I might, to throw out that I think we have to pay really close attention to, and that is also geopolitics, and it's it is Iran and China. With Iran, the Ayatollahs are killing their own people because they don't like what their people are wearing. Uh, they are close to having a crude nuclear bomb. Uh, the delivery capability still will take a while. But I would argue that Israel and Iran are already in a de facto war, a drone mm -hmm. war. The Israelis are taking out Iranian nuclear scientists. I think that the turmoil in that part of the world will persist. And then we have China. And frankly, uh, after this week's uh, extraordinary speeches by Putin and Biden, they didn't surprise me. What surprised me is how really poorly U.S.-China relations are going. Uh, if Blinken is right that China is getting close to sending arms to Russia, that's a red line that Russia would be crossing. And I would argue that there could be even more sanctions by the U.S. against China as relations between the two countries really hit rock bottom. And that's that's something that maybe has been overlooked because the war in Ukraine is such a, a, a is so dramatic. But I think Beijing and Washington are headed for uh, even tougher uh, relations in the next few months. And how would that manifest itself? Would there what kind of increased restrictions? Uh, would there be more uh, higher tariffs? Uh, yeah, a prohibition of certain goods, or, or what, how do you think that might manifest itself? I'd say two big implications. The first is even more sanctions by the U.S. Certainly, we're not going to lift the Donald Trump sanctions. They will stay. The second implication to me is a really significant increase, once again, in defense spending. You know, we, we rose by about 10 percent in defense spending last year, where we were up to 850 billion. I think I thought this year maybe would go down a little. We still go up, but by a slower rate of increase, as I always point out. But I'm beginning to think the U.S. is going to have to spend more on defense than Biden had, had hoped. We could be up close to 10% again with a focus on shipbuilding uh, and a focus on the South China Sea. So uh, going back to our question about the budget, is defense going to be exempted from a, a cap or a, uh, a shaving that might take place? Uh, I mean, the Republicans do that at their own risk, right? You're absolutely right. I Again, I had thought maybe defense would get a haircut. I am not willing to go there now. I think defense will get a significant increase. And there are many places you can go to. The Wall Street Journal editorial page often talks about how defense spending as a percentage of GDP is, has actually been quite modest. And I do think we're going to see a, another significant increase in Pentagon spending. That, of course, boosts the, the domestic economy. But on the other side, do you see uh, a big disruption of uh, of China's exports to the U.S.? Uh, would you see increased tariffs or restrictions? I mean, which is 
certainly a negative, I think, for the U.S. economy. I mean, obviously, some people want to onshore more products, and I understand that. But in the short run, they, they are the cheapest producer for an awful lot of ours. How, how do you think that will play out? Well, I think that the key factor here is that the deep, deep antipathy in Washington in both parties toward the Chinese. It's bipartisan. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has formed a committee uh, to investigate China's uh, spying on the U.S., its treatment of dissidents, uh, a long range of uh, uh, transgressions, including not being very transparent on COVID. And this committee that McCarthy put together got votes from almost 50 percent of the Democrats. So there's really a strong feeling that this committee, uh, with bipartisan support, could come up with even more tariffs against the Chinese. I mean, it is ironic, looking back, that, uh, you know, it was Trump that really started a lot of the anti-Chinese sentiment. Um, I I am a free trader and worried about the the tariffs. I I, I did, I, I was strongly opposed to the tariffs. I mean, you know, he put them on European goods and, and Canadian goods. And I, I, I think a lot of that was very counterproductive and uh, uh, worse in the economy. But, uh, you know, just the anti-Chinese stance um, really, uh, you know, was, was uh, maybe he was ahead of the curve in, in at least that area. Yeah, I, I would just say if we do impose more tariffs on China, the decision is up to China. If they send arms, if they clearly send arms, and the balloon story to me was kind of overdone, and that, I, yeah. that didn't that didn't worry me all that much. But if China clearly is starting to ship arms to Russia, they will get more tariffs. I think that's that's going to become quite likely. I would say this: I think chances of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan are slim. Uh, I think that Xi has enough on his plate right now. I think he would not want global trade sanctions if he did this. I think he would not want to see thousands of coffins coming back to Beijing, as Putin has seen coming back to uh, Moscow. So I don't think an invasion of, of Taiwan is soon. But I do say, I do see pretty rocky trade relations for at least another year or two. You know, it's tying this in. I talked about the brain drain from Russia. Um, uh, is there a possibility that something like that could or in some sense might now be happening in China? I, I know a lot of people were uh, with the COVID policies were very fed up. And uh, now, of course, they've been dismantled, but uh, did not like that aspect of of uh, of uh, the Chinese policy and seeing what the Chinese, how authoritarian the Chinese government can do scares a lot of the younger people. Yeah, and I, I think that you could argue that uh, Xi's hold on power is somewhat tenuous. Uh, there was quite a pushback on zero COVID. Uh, I think there would be a big pushback if the Chinese economy stays mediocre. So like I said, Xi's got too much on his plate, in my opinion, to uh, start a war with Taiwan. Maybe he would divert people's attention. But I think there would be such a global pushback against Z that he would regret doing it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the COVID story in China, you know, which was at first considered the great success, less yeah. deaths by, uh, than everyone else, turned into a massive fiasco in the last year. I mean, uh, and, and not, I mean, and, you know, finally abandoning it, but then without really protections for the people. I mean, there, you know, clearly the death rate is is many times higher. I think the Indian government also greatly suppressed the the death rate from India. Um, uh, I think that's almost been confirmed. So the, the death rate is probably going to be somewhere between a million and two. And most of them are, you know, very, very elderly, fortunately, not the younger people. Uh, no death is good, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's basically the same sort of pattern that we've uh, seen in other countries. If there's a sleeper issue that is going to get more attention, it's regulatory policy. I think you're going to see a more aggressive antitrust enforcement from this administration, uh, more aggressive enforcement on uh, the tech sector, uh, I don't see any liberalization on energy. I, I thought that Biden might have learned the lesson 
that we still need renewables. Uh, we still need uh, fossil fuels, but that hasn't sunk in at the White House. So I think that while Biden is, his job approval rating has gone up, uh, I think that one thing that will be very controversial over the next year or two is his willingness to regulate aggressively. Uh, so are you saying that let's talk about antitrust? I mean, what what do you think is spurring? I mean, there's always been an anti-tech undercurrent. Yep. What is uh, spurring that now? I would argue a very progressive view, a group of regulators in places like the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department. Uh, the hiring uh, from Biden uh, on all of these posts have been well to the left. And I, I, you know, I know he wants to please progressives. I get it. But I think that it could uh, sour relations between Washington and business even more than they are now. Mm, yeah, well, we had the resignation of the last Republican, I guess, on the Federal Trade Commission just yeah. a f- few weeks ago with a uh, scathing uh, op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, that accompanied uh, that. That was, uh, you know, quite something. Um, what, I mean, do, do you think there's, is, the, is there a public feeling on, is it the progressives that are anti-big business or is there, I mean, is there a public uh, sentiment? I mean, most of the time these companies got too big years ago. They're not really getting bigger and gobbling up things anymore um, of any note, to my knowledge. I mean, I'm just wondering where. That's about 10 seconds left is, to, uh, for comments. Okay. I, I would just say it goes to, to prices. I think the prices of things have uh, unnerved the, the uh, American public. And, and I understand why Biden wants to take a tough stance on big business. But I think he's he's going to needlessly provoke this big business in many areas, including tech and energy. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Pleasure to get the professor for the hour with Greg Valliers, the chief U.S. strategist for AGF Investments. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by Warren School. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.